Hi. <laughs> Welcome to the second event in the fall 2011 new writing series. Uh, I have to th I'd like to thank the Dean in the Division of Humanities and Arts and the UCSD Literature Department, as well as the Sims Family Trust. In addition, I'd like to thank the Mandeville Special Collections Library and remind you all that these events are being taped and are available to listen to at the library's website. So turn your cell phones off, please. Uh, and go check out the, rec the recording. Sounds good. Uh, finally, thanks to Frankie and Rachel, the new writing series RAs, who do so much work to make these events possible. Last week, we had the honor of a visit from the Chilean poet Raul Zarita. And in order to make the reading accessible to much of our audience, we, my wife and I, read versions of Zarita's work from three different translators. We barely mentioned their names, Anna Dini, Daniel Brzezetsky, and William Rowe. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Daniel Shapiro, a major figure in translating world voices into the English language. I'm not sure that the sweat and necessity of the act of translation is ever truly recognized. The winnowing of alternatives, the resistance that resistant texts present when taking them across linguistic borders, borders that can often make intentional and often intentionally strange decisions on the part of the original writer seem simply strange in the second translated writing. If one can conceive of writing as a series of decisions, then translation can certainly be seen as the same, but with somehow much more at stake. Trans in translate etymologically takes off from to carry, to bear. And I think there is a kind of heaviness to the translator's duty, a kind of bearing up and facing work that by its very nature is imperfect. Today we get to hear from a poet who has committed much of his life to translation, who spent 17 years carrying another vital Chilean poet, Tomas Harris's book, Chapango, with him, internalizing the book, enormous in subject, innovation, and vision, and finally delivering it to a readership that was lucky to have it. The very title, Chapango, highlights some of the complexities of translation. Chapango was the word and place that Columbus had thought he had found in his westward voyage, a word for Japan, not the so-called new world that he had discovered, so to speak. Not only are there words within words, there are worlds buried beneath them, as we will see. Shapiro's translation of Chapango, from which he will read this evening, was published by Bucknell University Press in 2010. The book received a starred review in Library Journal and has been praised in American Poetry Review, BOM, Hispan America, and World Literature Today. Daniel Shapiro received a BA in English, American Literature from San Diego State University, and an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Montana. His poems, translations, and prose have been published in the American Poetry Review, the Brooklyn Rail, CNN.com, Confrontation, Electric Literature, and other publications. He's received translation fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Penn Translation Fund. He's currently translating Mexican writer Roberto Ransom's short story collection, Desaparecidos, Animales y Artistas, Missing Persons, Animals, and Artists. Shapiro serves as Director of Literature at the America Society in New York, 
and is editor of the Society's journal Review, Literature and the Arts and Arts of the Americas. During his tenure there, he has presented hundreds of writers from throughout the Americas and published their work in Review. They have included Nobel Prize winners, Mario Vargas Llosa, Derek Walcott, Octavio Paz, and many younger writers. All this, and he writes his own poems as well, some of which we will hear shortly. Please, a warm welcome for Daniel Shapiro. Many thanks, Ben, for the invitation. And I also want to thank Christina Rivera Garza, who was instrumental in, in making this program happen, and in New York, Araceli Tinajero at the City College of New York and the Graduate Center, uh, who facilitated communications among, among the, uh, both of you. And thanks to all of you for attending on this rainy day. It's uh, very unusual for California. So it's great to be here. Uh, as Ben mentioned, I'm going to be reading from Sipango uh, by Tomas Harris. Uh, I'll be reading from my translation, and um, uh, as well as some of my own poems. Uh, the book is available for sale for those of you interested after the program. Uh, I'd just like to say a few more words. Uh, ben gave a good resume. I'll, uh, I'll add to that a bit uh, and forgive any repetition. Uh, Tomas Harris wrote Supongo in the 1980s while living in Chile under the Pinochet dictatorship. It was published in 1992, and the second edition, which is considered the definitive edition, of, published in 1996 by Fondo de Cultura Económica. Am I speaking loudly enough? Okay, thank you. Uh, the book's point of departure is Columbus's arrival in the Americas, and his mistaken premise that he'd reached the East Indies, that he'd reached Japan or Sipango, as it was known since the uh, days of Marco Polo. The poems in Sipango comment on the brutal colonial legacy of Columbus, as well as on Pinochet-era Chile, and have contemporary resonance as well. The book presents a harsh, nightmarish world peopled by oppressors and oppressed, one marked by the brutality of those who hold and exercise absolute power, but also by the possibility of redemption through desire. The language and imagery in Sipango are strange, obsessive, and rhythmic. And as you'll hear, some of the images include, uh, some of the images that recur throughout the book, in fact, uh, include uh, blue rats, vacant lots, will-o'-the-wisps, and uh, Hans Belmer's dolls, among many others. Uh, there are shifts in diction from contemporary to archaic language, and you'll also hear some of that uh, in, in the reading. Uh, throughout its pages, Harris employs references to personages and texts, including Marco Polo, Columbus, Dracula, uh, Herman Melville, uh, Nerval's surrealist work Aurelia, Billy Holiday, The Holocaust, and the film Goldfinger, and that's just a few of them. Um, there are also references to Chilean history and Ch Chilean locations. All of these elements in my opinion, produce the effect of an epic poem rather than a collection of separate poems. Uh, ben mentioned uh, the um, process or the, the length of time it took me to translate uh, uh, to, to, uh, for the whole process to take place, uh, about 17 years from the time I started translating it to the time of publication. Uh, I met Thomas Harris uh, in 1992 
when I was presenting a group of Chilean writers at the America Society where I, I direct the literature department. And we were uh, presenting them in, in a series of programs. Uh, he was participating uh, with his wife and, and various other poets. And at the time, I, I picked up or I got a copy of his book, and I started reading it, and it was a sort of literary seduction. Uh, so I started translating one poem, then a few more, and then made a decision to, well, the decision was made for me to translate the whole book. Uh, it was the first real work I translated, so that was, it was a bold move on my part, uh, but uh, it was the voice that kept me uh, moving and kept me engaged throughout the process. So um, it's been a fruitful journey. Uh, the, um, along the way, uh, I managed to uh, have poems published in American Poetry Review. Tomas was the cover feature in 1997. That was a, a big... Um, a big deal for him, and uh, also for the translations, of course. And I uh, had the chance to go to Chile uh, through an NEA grant, and uh, we were able to work on uh, the um, various queries I had for the book, and also um, uh, I was able to start a, a section of endnotes, which were necessary for this uh, book. And then uh, eventually I found the publisher, Bucknell University Press, and the book was published uh, last year. So I'm going to read a few poems now from Sipanga. Okay, the first I'm going to read in, in Spanish first so that you can hear the original language. Uh, the book is divided into five sections. The first section is called Danger Zones, and there are a series of, there are a series of poems that have that title. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to read the first of those. Uh, Zonas de peligro. Así como largas y angostas fajas de barro. Así como largas y angostas fajas de noche. Así como largas y angostas fajas de musgo rojo sobre la piel. Las zonas de peligro son ininteligibles. O las prefigura un rojo disco de metal. Símbolo de un sol mojoso al fondo de una calle desmes desmembrada. Meado por los perros. Las zonas de peligro son inevitables. Te rodean el cuerpo en silencio. En silencio te lamen la oreja. En secreto te revuelven el ojo. Sin el menor ruido te besan el culo. Y los escasos letreros de neón ocultan su única identidad. Campos de exterminio. Danger Zones. Just like long and narrow strips of mud, just like long and narrow strips of night, just like long and narrow strips of red moss on the skin, the danger zones are unintelligible, or they're prefigured by a red metal disc, symbol of a moldy sun pissed on by dogs at the end of a dismembered street. The danger zones are inevitable. They surround your body in silence. In silence, they lick your ear. In secret, they stir your eyes. Without the least sound, they kiss your ass. And meager neon signs hide their true identity. Extermination camps. And that poem sets the, the tone and the, the setting for the rest of the book. Uh, the next poem to read is uh, also one of a series in the book. Uh, the, uh, it's... Uh, there's a street in Concepcion, Chile, uh, which is in the south of the country, 
Uh, it's where Tomas spent uh, much time during the dictatorship. He was at the university there. And uh, Orampeo Street, as he told me, uh, was the center of the red light district. So it was a very rough area, but it was also a site where there was a lot of uh, the brutality that the dictatorship visited on the population uh, was manifested. Uh, bodies were dumped in the river and, and so forth. Uh, so this, this poem uh, takes off from there. Orampeo 4. Since this whole story takes place on Orampeo Street, relax, it's a rag doll, that greasy bundle reddened by dawn, thrown stark naked over the street's dirty cliffs. But look closely now at her ribs. They seem rooted in the street's dirty cliffs, where she is thrown as if to sleep. Naked like that, you might think that love's desires will soon be arousing her. But look closely now at her ribs. They already seem rooted in the dirty cliffs, on the street where she is thrown as if to sleep. Naked like that, you might think she's dreaming of grass, of the sun, of a red fruit, but no. Look closely now at the dark miracle of her ribs, pushing into the dirty cliffs where they threw her to sleep until she took root. <coughs> this next poem is probably one of the few love poems in the, in the book. Um, and it uh, has a reference to Genet, Jean Genet, uh, his play, The Maids. Beneath the shadow of a limed wall, Beneath the shadow of a limed wall, among erotic slogans, our bodies were barely touching. I don't know if we were already condemned. There were other bodies among us, maybe not crowds, but we weren't alone. Then I remembered that Genet wanted the maids to be played by teenagers, but a poster still nailed to a corner of the set would warn the audience of the investiture and the fiction. But we weren't in the theater. I wanted to take you in the dark. There were other bodies among us, maybe not crowds. The bodies had eyes, the bodies had no eyes. I'll never know if there were windows or if we were exposed to the weather. It's a barracks like the ones in Treblinka, someone said. But I was listening to the sounds of the city, as if on short wave. I'll never know if there was a window, but on the white wall, a neon sign filtered brilliant green, and in the delirium accompanying love, in the unabsolved delirium where we all ended up, we began to imagine things. In shadow, I embraced you, thinking I was embracing you in daylight. On the wall, the glowing green sign of the Hotel King was the only sun. One of the recurring images in this book is that of the baldio, or vacant lot. It's a curious image because it suggests both uh, uh, presence and absence, uh, the, uh, hope and despair. This poem is called Vacant Lot. The dusks over vacant lots always are charged with repeating images. Without human form, modeled purely out of earth, dissolved in pure rain, stretching over pure mud and scraps of greens, coming loose from the hills on this side of the world, unbathed by the sun, where the pure agony of sun refracts the pure absence of human form in the designated places. History ends at the vacant lots. Our pupils widen the survey of space and our mouths stuttered a broken-off desire. At most, our teeth bled the tips of our tongues, 
At most our minds dreamed impossible bodies in the red separation of earth and sun. The dusks over vacant lots always are charged with repeating images. Our bodies thickened with the onset of shadows, became vegetal with the rotten greens, mineralized in the empty instant of the night, stuck to smoke dispersing in white manes floating toward the whole of the night, or waited as if that final water, unnamed by images, would spill from the plazas of the night, that final water of myths and dreams that stanch the purple stains from our bodies with the cleanliness of a new human form. Um, the next poem takes its title from the 1964 film Goldfinger, James Bond. Um, and this, this poem is told from the point of view of uh, Columbus's uh, crew, or ostensibly that's, that's, who, that's who's telling the story. So it's, uh, it's set in, in the time of, of Columbus's voyage. Goldfinger. Bullness and Orampeo streets. We heard a crash of naked women. We gave them chase. We finally took one. We couldn't stand it any longer. He'd sent us to take some women. She was fair as this land. We brought that comely young wench to our vessel. The admiral made her dress and gave her glass beads and bells and brass rings that he might watch her and returned her to land very honorably. She showed us where her village was. This woman wore a gold sliver in her nose, which was a sign there was gold in this land. And that poem has uh, its details, or at least some of its details, come from uh, Columbus's diaries. It's interesting uh, rereading and reading, in some cases, some of the texts that, uh, that Tomas refers to in, in, the, in his various poems. The Last Street. We have a vision stuck to our pupils that dates from our first year of life in the South American barrio. Like in Genet's novel, every day, a hearse crosses in front of the unhinged facade of the Yugo Bar. The Yugo Bar is a miserable, sad and yellow corner on Pratt Street. Every day we see a hearse passing slowly along Pratt, but we don't know if it's a conscious fact or scraps of a dream that deceived us until first daylight. We have a vision stuck to our pupils. Every hour we see a hearse passing slowly along Pratt. Maybe it's because Pratt is the street in Concepcion that leads to the general cemetery. We have a vision stuck to our pupils that dates from our first minute of life in this South American barrio. Like in Genet's novel, every day, minute by minute, a hearse is seen passing along Pratt the last street in Concepcion, the one that leads to the void. This, this poem is um, uh, for, dedicated to the author's two sons, Diego and Simon, and uh, I see it as a sort of meditation on, on innocence and experience. <coughs> Excuse me. I'll read this one in Spanish also. It's a short poem. Mar del Sol Naciente, a Diego y Simón. Los ojos como los soles van adquiriendo su brillo, su configuración definitiva, a medida que el tiempo se aleja 
de su nacimiento. Primero, dos uvas grises, opacas, que se van abrillantando poco a poco desde sus extremos, como si las alumbraran desde dentro. Después, la claridad que no cabe duda ya es mirada. El filo del amanecer en alta mar termina de explicarlo todo. Después, los esfuerzos inútiles, pero constantes, para que una nube de opio como la de Baudelaire no los opaque prematuros, neonatos, pegándoseles en el cerebro de una vez para siempre. Sea of the Rising Sun to Diego and Simon. Eyes like suns begin acquiring their glow, their complete form as time recedes from their birth. First two dull grapes, opaque, glowing brighter and brighter from their borders, as if lit from within. Then the clarity that no doubt is now a gaze. The edge of dawn on the high seas stops its explanations. Afterwards, the useless but constant attempts so an opium cloud like Baudelaire's won't darken them prematurely, tiny infants implanting themselves in the brain once and for all. I'd like to read a, uh, one of the longer poems. Uh, this poem is, is um, uh, the, the, the protagonist, so to speak, of this poem is, is Aurelia, who's the sensuous protagonist of uh, Gerard de Nerval's surrealist uh, work by the same title. And, and Tomas uses this character to his own ends in this poem. Uh, the, the, uh, she's the protagonist and she's being observed by, uh, again, ostensibly members of, of, uh, of the crew. Or she's being, um, uh, um, it's an act of voyeurism. Uh, the, the, in the title, uh, the title is The Burning Afternoons of Cathay. And, and again, Cathay was the name for China uh, from the time of Marco Polo. The Burning Afternoons of Cathay. And the perfect love that appeared to us in a dog's dream, we could have named it Aurelia. Aurelia, just like that, so that bordering madness, she might fertilize everything false in this chronicle. We could all be one, the ones who stare, and Aurelia, the one we stared at, to arouse the sediment that follows. Once again, evening was falling along the coasts of Cathay. Aurelia was strolling through the rookery of this southern shore. Heated in her evening, she smelled of moisture and salt. A magenta tunic lay slick against salty thighs. Whether Aurelia's or the evening's, we don't know. At this point in desire, the facts are mixed with the skinny beloved. It was evening in the harbors of Cathay when the sea crashed phosphorescent against her thighs and multiplied treasures beneath the nakedness of her feet. Wind passed over her breasts, transparent beneath her tunic's sunny magenta hue. Then we parted the bushes with quivering hands, our trembling hands almost sea flowers. At that moment, she noticed our presence. I looked toward the seawall at some masturbating men. Beneath their transparent cuirasses, their skin quivered with pleasure in the wind. Aurelia averted her gaze, but we'd entered her. She felt it, 
I felt invaded, swallowed, sucked dry. After the revulsion of initiation, every rite bears its price in gold. She felt horrified, and after horror, began to tremble. I only wanted to see that phallus I glimpsed through the sage begin to spurt. She looked, but all her gaze met was my full gaze. Aurelia saw that I was enjoying it. That gaze was drowning me in the crystalline riches of the rocks, pearls, mother of pearl, the shimmering interior of the shells. Everything reminded me of white milk. And again Aurelia looked, but turned her gaze like a rose of desire, not to our animal eyes, but to the lighthouse, its human height, whose boiling light was sprinkling her body with a thousand and one scintillations of desire. Uh, I'd like to read uh, another poem with where Aurelia makes an appearance, and this is the uh, concluding poem from Sipango. Poesis of the Better Life. Deep inside the Yugo bar, the black nocturnal butterflies finally went mad. They didn't harm anyone. They clustered in a tribal swarm. They were going to hurl themselves against the pipes full of gold dust lighting the halls. We're searching for a better life, they said. Aurelia broke away from them, adorned herself, unsexed herself, and went away with the black nocturnal butterflies. A better life, she was shouting after so much cacao rum. Like always, she turned pale after so much cacao rum. In Sipango, we bathed our mares in cacao rum. All this happened in a dream bordering dawn. We were stranded. What was in my head? Some trivial details, a pool of crude oil, black plastic bags, gold dust. All this happened after desire in Sipango. Deep inside the Yugo bar, the black nocturnal butterflies finally went mad. They didn't want to harm anyone, but they dragged many away. A better life, they were dreaming in a whisper in these Iron Age dawns. Although we may speak of happiness, what will happen after all this? We flowed into a tunnel gilded like a resplendent sewer. At the end, we saw a bitch who couldn't stop herself a yellow bitch running her tongue over her wounds, fear nested in her animal eyes. So the book ends on a bittersweet note at best. Uh, now I'd like to read some, some poems of mine. And these are from three manuscripts. Uh, actually, the first one is an early poem, and it's about a brick. Red tooth pulled from some building. I found a brick in the street. Lone chip block. Red tooth pulled from some building. I circled it three times slowly. I ran my finger along its six sides. I tapped where I thought the door would be. I took it home and set it on the couch. I told it I was alone in this city. How at night I hear the clop of shoes on concrete. Leaves falling off the bottle brush tree. The brick remained silent, motionless, but thinking perhaps, like a watch that holds its breath. If it could speak, it might tell me of bricks hitching rides through taxi windows, brick the great building stone of eastern cities, bricks lined up like headstones, and the rain through time, cracking them like square eggs. I would lift each half to my ear, 
the coarse rock freed from its skin and hear the breathing, or discover through a hole that the brick was a tiny accordion trapped inside a brick, and that because of the lack of air, its music had been reduced to a wheeze. About then I decided to open it, went for a chisel, humming a polka. Excuse me. Um, Okay. The next poem, excuse me, I'll just take a swig of this. The next poem is set during the Cold War and um, the, um, the star of this poem is my first Spanish teacher, Mrs. Bedard. Um, there's a reference to a song, Cuando Salí de Cuba. Uh, it means when I left Cuba. And also the word escuchen, which means listen, it's a command. Incident at Robbins Lane School. <clears throat> Mrs. Bedard sets down the needle on the scratchy record. Cuando salí de Cuba, escuchen. Her black eyes glinting remember rumbas under florid skies. She tugs her earlobe and the fake pearl clipped to it rattles to the floor. The pale gray tiles echo grids on the ceiling and windows. We're locked in. But even Luisito's crackling tenor voice or Mrs. Bedard's sprayed helmet of hair, the joy of her limbs as she claps and sings, can't protect us from a fear mounting the air, a gray spiked fear building to storm when the sirens begin. Missiles raining over Robbins Lane School, red-hot missiles stamped in Spanish, communist agitprop missiles stamped with bears. A dangerous island is the beachhead of our fears. We have to stop them, the principal says, as he leads us an anthem, the loose flesh quivering on his arms. We have to make them back down. We have to crouch facing the wall in the dark gym, our fingers laced behind our heads, protect our skulls. This is for my father, disguise. Tonight at the mirror, I admire my upper lip, the stubble growing darker each day. I keep dreaming of disguises, thick handlebars of hair, the great Fu Manchu, one like Gables, pencil thin, to make women swoon. In old photos, my father was his double until his face got recast into long Russian jowls and an apple nose, a black brush just beneath it. He was a man who scribbled faces on his eggs before releasing the yolk. In the bowl, the floating globes like twin suns. Now I imagine my face becoming his, no matter how I disguise it. I see his nose jutting out of my brow in 10 years, my hair becoming yellow, gray, and thin. I keep glancing behind me into the mirror, my face blank as an egg. When my mother was a young woman, she aspired to be a dancer. And uh, her inspiration and ambition uh, inspired me to write this poem. Dance. On the phone, your voice sounds thin, as if the wire could snap between us, asking how have I been and how I did it. I want to tell you about freedom, mother, freedom. When I'm lost, I hail a taxi, and it's thrilling, rolling down Madison in the blue and glassy rain, 
how some mornings between slices of buildings, the Chrysler hammered silver on the skyline, that blue squeezes through, and then the wind scallops the maples. These are the dreams you never finished because your life forked at 20 between the promise of the hills of New Mexico and the vague family stirring your womb. It swelled three times as if bursting when I was born and then two others, every season turning your dancers' legs to stone until they'd never guide you back. Your lips are black in old photographs, resolved into a heart. Your legs keep trembling when the waltzes begin as if the arabesques they knew could still release them. I want to finish what you started, here, another place, with words beaten thin as periled wire. I'll tell you how I did it. It was easy, inventing histories the way our lives might have been, how in 1947 a woman named Shulamith took one step in a royal blue sedan, driving far as Tulare or Albuquerque, and she never looked back. It will be easy as that the way I've planned it, like stepping into a taxi with no bags and never getting out. This poem is set in a drag club in New York City. It's called La Escuelita, which means the little school. Dollar bills hang tongues from your dress straps as you one kick, two, in blue chiffon, throw your head back. We stroke our beer mugs, then our beards, gingerly trace our lips. We need to keep you at fingertips length, continue dancing. The band plays salsa in the corner. A wooden fan slices the air, a salty wind through a Caribbean scene. And if we're exiles, we're only men against ourselves, exchanging partners for the dancers we've invented. Out of our wallets, dollar bills fighting their way. We toast, salute, our faces warp behind the glass. At night inside the mirror, what do you see makeup off? Your face a stain between your ears. Do you see bones inside your forehead, pores and stubble, the lumpy throat? Or are those clouds fanning your crown, a blur of pomade and sweat? It doesn't matter. A steady round and you'll return the way we want you, wearing poppy red and velvet, inviting our tips as you kick your way back on stage. The stage is bright. The crowd is dark, swaying as one. <clears throat> this, this poem is for my brother, my sister-in-law, and my nephew. And my sister-in-law and nephew are here with us tonight. I'm happy to welcome them, Peggy and Ryan. My brother Ron, who couldn't be with here, couldn't be with us today. But I'd like to read this for them. Four lives passing through the night. A suburban evening where a dark house sits, an evening of cypresses, extinguished street lamps. The coming night will stir lilacs and fear. Sirens, women with open mouths, split open and wailing. The black wing of a mountain swoops down. A woman waking in her bed discovers a pool, a growing stain. Her husband can't stanch it. It flows through the bed sheets, the cracks in her hands, carries them with it, carries their dream out of her veins in a swift ebb, the one about to be born. 
They take him out of the folds and slap him, a child risen from blood and ancestors. His grandfather dies as he is born in the middle of the night, floating smiling in the stainless steel room. Her husband races through the halls, leans out a window, delivers his hands to the sky, uttering a name. A bridge, a trickling fountain, the rays of the sun, the smell of warm bread wafting by. He breathes in the day, and it fills him with his sun. And uh, I neglected to say that the fourth life was Milton. That, that's my sister-in-law's father who passed away, unfortunately. But he's one of the voices that, or one of the lives that are passing in that poem. Some of you may have heard of or had an experience with uh, a medium who was based here in San Diego. Her name was Adele Tinning. Uh, I had the good fortune to visit her um, about 20 years ago. And uh, this poem was inspired by that experience. Uh, there's another reference in the poem to the PSA flight that crashed tragically in the late 1970s, I believe. Uh, in this poem, the medium speaks and the narrator speaks also. They're uh, varying, uh, they, take, they take turns, so to speak. The medium. When I'm sitting here alone, the dear Lord uses half his energy. This table weighs 30 pounds. He has to magnetize my hands. Adele Tinning's hands pose a question I can't explain. I follow her gestures, the threads she unwinds, imagining wires, special muscles in her arms, until a breeze fluffs the curtains in the window. That's a spirit, dear, that puff of wind. In a Polaroid, a bolt of light forks from her infant son's head. Honeycombed spirals pass under the table whose leg glows blue. She touches a seam in the bird's eye maple. She calls her spirit guides, Matthew and John, but Zorro comes in. He doesn't touch the floor like the others. Ask him to tell you what stage you're in. Seven stages like the seven ages of man. He says I have only love to learn. I ask for my grandmother who enters the table, tapping out Esther against linoleum. She makes it creak and tip in my lap. She must have talked fast because she's tipping fast. She wishes me fortune and the table leg slams. Send out a light beam, they'll come right over. Even from China, there are souls on all of Saturn's rings. A spirit can travel through heat or cold. It's at zero degrees. So if you feel a little chill, you'll know. Adele Tinning's hands pose a question I can't explain. Her question to Captain James McFerrin two days after his plane went down. A lump of flesh was found jammed in a phone book, but his words kept traveling until they found her, until the passengers touched her forehead one by one. Moments before, we all left our bodies and watched it hit the ground. When I was an undergraduate, I had the opportunity to travel to Guadalajara, Mexico, and um, had some adventures with a very eccentric guy. Uh, they called him Guero, which means Blondie, and he's the character, uh, main character in this poem. Uh, there's also a reference to uh, Father Hidalgo, who, as many of you may know, 
uh, was the, um, the one who uh, first cried for independence in Mexico with the Grito de Dolores in the early 1800s. Summer Guadalajara. Guero danced a drunk bolero on the roof. He gave me a peso crushed smooth by a train, a green clay figurine. We swam in the fountain, circled by cars. Drivers stopped to whistle, gringo. Guero shouted back, no, Frances, water clinging to his corkscrew curls. After that summer, he disappeared into Bloomington, Indiana. We exchanged letters, one each, and stopped. Sometimes I think of Guadalajara's roses, its cantinas and fountains, the squawk of macaws calling from the forest, where the bus released us further than we thought. We found the wall where they jammed Hidalgo's head on a stake, three small, stiff squirrels lining the curb. We found the mummies of Guanajuato crowding a hill, babies in lace caps and trios of men, teeth exposed to sing rancheras to themselves. If I could wake you out of your heartland, I would point my finger south toward a vanishing point of sand, knowing full well when you place that silver peso on the track to smear the face of a man to alloy, entire histories disappeared. The silver coin warms my palm, the moment clear. The title of this poem comes from a... um, a painting by Juan Miro, the Spanish painter. Man and woman standing in front of a pile of excrement. It was your dog. No, it was yours. And so on, until the neighbors got tired of the shouting and someone threw a brick. But the bickering reached new heights. It was Lorca summer, orange blossoms and geraniums on the balconies, gypsies snapping their fingers in the plaza, a plump American munching a churro smacked her lips. <clears throat> then the man lost his balance and almost stepped in it. They flailed their red and yellow arms like fantastic balloons and animal shapes. Your pudendum is a big, hairy bird, and your thing is a fish that goes boing, and on and on, while the pile of excrement posed on its pedestal, lovely as marble or Greta Garbo tossing her head back in late afternoon light. Uh, about 12 years ago, I had the chance to go to Peru, and I uh, visited Cusco, beautiful colonial city um, and um, in the Andes. And one of the delicacies there is cuy, which is guinea pig. And uh, that's where this poem came from. In this poem, the cuy is speaking. Uh, soliloquy. <laughs> you called me guinea pig. Rat, but let's make one thing abundantly clear. I'm the Kui, the sacred rodent of the Incas. That's why I'm standing on this plate, crowned with a tomato and a garland of parsley, atop a hillock of potatoes and corn. When the Chasqui ran me down, I gave them chase over curly mountains and plains before they slit my throat and I screamed. I was trussed like an Inca princess for the royal meal, it beats suffocating in a maiden's dry tomb. You should treat me like a princess. Instead, you snap my picture with glee with the cook of Kusikui. Believe it, she prayed for my soul as I roasted on a spit for you. We could have met on Pachamama. 
You could have chased me among the hillocks, through terraced fields, among boulders strewn along the plain of Saksai Huaman, where Indians play their smoky kennas, where tourists throng the sacrificial stone splashed with llama's blood. Charred to a crisp, I'm frozen in flight. I'll stare you down before you take a bite. When you eat me, you'll become me, my warrior gringo. Yes, my bones are doubly sweet. Maybe next time you'll sample the beef, the anticuchos, sink your teeth into the heart of a bull, and speak Quechua rhymes. And the last poem I'd like to read is, uh, is from my most uh, recent poetry manuscript called uh, Woman at the Cusp of Twilight, and it's inspired by photographs imagined and real of uh, uh, largely members of my, my maternal family. Uh, in this, the, the anecdote that inspired this story uh, was about my mother and her best friend, Mimi. Uh, they, were, they were students at NYU, and they were failing their anatomy class, and Mimi had a creative solution to how to pass the class. So that's what this is about. The anatomy cat. Come on, doll, whispered Mimi as she bundled its cadaver in her mouton coat. No one will notice. We'll pass the course, and no harm done. She couldn't suppress a growing giggle. It was infectious, so you laughed, too. You followed her out the swinging door, across Washington Square, up the steps of the Queen's Express. Everyone parted for the young, pretty mother carrying her baby in her arms. A silver-haired gentleman took off his fedora and offered his seat. She lowered her head with grateful eyes, but lost her grip and the tail slipped out, unfurled and hung, a whiff of formaldehyde cut through perfume, a collective gasp from all the women on the bus. The two of you laid the dead cat out on Etta Mandel's marble table. Mimi sliced it open, examined its parts, sewed it closed again. The tabby lay sprawled as if stretching after a long nap. You'd return it the next day, Poor thing with glassy eyes, a missing heart, its soul detached by a stroke of a scalpel, organs classified in jars on a dusty shelf. But that evening, before that surgery, was less than biology, was something more, was two young women blushing and giggling as you dashed off the bus. Thank you. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, should I continue standing here? And uh, I think we need the mic. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, okay, so if any questions about any about the translations, about Sipango, about Chile, about my work, nothing? Oh, okay. Okay, well, if anyone has any questions, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the question was, um, I think that's a good question. Thank you. Um, how, uh, how did my how did my, my work translating and, and writing inform each other? How do they relate to, to each other? <coughs> and that was something that I, I was thinking of, actually. Um, I think that they do. Uh, in particular, I, I started translating about 1992, as I mentioned, 
and um, the voice of the uh, of the the, the book uh, Sipango was very strong. It was very rhythmical, very obsessive, and I'm sure and the and the language is also very strange. Some of the imagery, as I mentioned, and I think that probably did influence. Uh, I don't know if it was apparent in what I read, but I there are poems of mine that I, I think have maybe similar rhythms or they've been influenced by the rhythm, maybe even some of the images, um, uh, maybe some of the, the dark subjects, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, influenced w w what I chose to wrote about, write about. Um, so, yeah, there, I, I think there definitely is an a, a interrelationship, and I, and I think for people who translate and write their own work, I, I think the two do feed each other. One, one um, complements the other. Other questions? I was I was interested in, uh, and maybe if you could give us an example of that in the translation, because I know the work <coughs> in the original is often, uh, I, I, I don't know, it, it is less than, it isn't exactly standard, and it's uh, in the original in Spanish. It is perhaps, uh, sometimes it breaks the rules of syntax or, or you know, standard usage. And I was wondering if there were some examples of decisions that you had to make along the way to kind of imitate those decisions, but in a way that would work in English. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, I'm sure I did. Now I'm trying to think. <laughs> That's going to put you on the spot. But. Well, <coughs> there, uh, w one area was that in some of the earlier poems there and this this influenced me in my own work also I think that there, there there's a very jagged look to some of the poems which suggests that the the subject matter and I had to decide how I was going to break the lines and I actually tried to stay pretty faithful to um, to what was in the Spanish um, although sometimes you have to you know reverse words and so forth um, but as far as um, I think the biggest challenge was not necessarily um, unconventional use of Spanish, but just the, uh, the, the strangeness of some of the um, uh, imagery and um, to find uh, equivalents. Well, actually, yeah, and what, or, or find, find deciding when to translate a word in Spanish or sometimes when to leave it. The word barrio, which was in that poem, The Last Street, was, was an example like that. Um, first, I thought... Barrio might have had too a local reference, uh, too too local a, a meaning to you know, you know New York City, you know El Barrio. Um, but and I tried a word like district, and somebody told me no, that's not good. Don't you know use the original Spanish. So I went back to the Spanish, and um, I guess it works. I hope it works. Yeah. Um, other examples. Uh, well, yeah, again, not so much unconventional Spanish, but uh, uh, the diction. He he uses uh, Tomas uses these archaic. Uh, this archaic language that will suddenly pop up, you know, in the middle of a sentence, or you know, he'll have something contemporary and something very archaic, and I would have to find an equivalent in English. So I, I, I went back to Shakespeare, since that's roughly you know the, the equivalent um, of uh, you know the kind of uh, language he was using, um, and or tried to make make things sound more formal. Uh, or even use capitalization, which is what he does. He has, you know, capital T for the, in the, in places, uh, to somehow suggest a different way of writing. I hope that answers it. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I think there was a question back here. Somebody? Uh, 
had a similar question on uh, how much do you think it's lost when you translate it from Spanish to English? Can't can someone do that? I, I didn't hear the last. How much is lost how from? How do you feel it gets lost when you translate from Spanish to English? <coughs> um, well, you, it, it, it's not, you know, translation is a, um, it's a new text. You know, it, it, you know, it should reflect the original. So, you're, you know, you're losing the original Spanish, obviously, so, uh, which is a very musical language. Uh, so I think you probably lose some of the, if, if the work is lyrical, you probably lose some of that, and you can compensate in ways in English. Um, and um, there are also sometimes challenges, you know, in terms of uh, word choices, uh, uh, things that may not be clear to English readers. And, and I, one way I addressed that was by endnotes, because there's so many references in this in this book, uh, but you know they say yes, that's something that 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 is generally acknowledged. You, you can't have an exact replication of uh, something in uh, a text from from one language to another. Uh, you know, there's a quote by the translator Suzanne Gil Levine, who's translated Manuel Puig and uh, Cabrera Infante, the Cuban writer, and she made the remark that. Um, Translation is a continuation of the original, so I thought that was useful in looking at uh, looking at the translation. You know, it, it should reflect the original in spirit as much as it can in language, and uh, but it's also something new. It's a new text. Yes. Um, I noticed that your poetry ranges from traveling to writing about family, and um, do you feel like you're more restricted when you're translating as opposed to writing your own poetry? Or do you feel like you still have a lot of creative? Yeah, yeah. The question was whether I I, I feel uh, in my in my poems uh, I, I'm writing about traveling and family and other um, taking other stances, and whether uh, I'm more restricted in, in translation. In some ways, it is more. Uh, it feels more exacting. I don't think it really is because I think writing you know, is very exacting also. But um, you know, yeah, you are bound to a, the text that you're working from. Um, but um, you know you can have flights of imagination. I think when you're working on something, and you know the process of uh, it's a very um, there is a very exacting component to translation. You know you have to look up a lot of words, but that sort of becomes part of the adventure. Uh, so uh, yeah, I would say probably I feel more restricted when I'm translating something, but it, it also. It, in a, in a sense, gives you more security because you have something very concrete that you're working from. You know, when you're writing a poem or um, uh, prose or whatever it is, you know, you're starting. It feels like you're starting from scratch. You're not really starting from scratch, but um, that's the way it feels. <coughs> that answers the question. Okay. Anybody else? Yes. You were saying that your latest work of poetry is based on uh, photographs, real and imagined. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little more on the imagine? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the question was uh, that my latest manuscript deals with uh, uh, or springs from photographs, real and imagined, and what are the, what are the imagined? Uh, I started. I've been writing about. I've, I've been writing about my maternal family from about the years 1920 to 1950, and it's taken different forms. I started out with a, um, uh, a series of vignettes. And it was fairly sketchy, actually. And somebody gave me a very heavy critique of it. And, and I think in, in response to that, I, 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 she said, there are too many characters here. You know, and I don't understand. I'm confused. 
So I wanted to take a very um, focused you know, approach. So I said, okay, I, you know, I have some old, a lot of old photographs of my, you know, my great grandparents, my grandparents, my, my, you know, my mother and aunts and uncles and so forth. And so I, I, I started out by taking one uh, photograph, uh, you know, just um, using that as a point of departure. Uh, but then I started realizing that I ran out of. First of all, I ran out of photographs. <laughs> And it was it was kind of restricting me to go back to the last question, so I thought, well, let me just be a little bit broader with myself and let and, and then work with anecdotes also. So I thought I had to address that somehow in the um, in the title because that's the subtitle, at least the working subtitle, photographs real and imagined. So yeah, so there are some that that aren't from any photographs that I have in my possession or that I know of, but they um, they could be. Let's put it that way. Anybody else? Somebody? Did I hear some? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, what is my schedule and how do I write? What do I have, uh, do it in between other things or do I have a set schedule? Well, I, I'm probably not as disciplined as I should be. And um, I, th- through the years, I, I've I've worked, you know, mostly on poetry. So, uh, at least the way I work, I, I've been able to do that between other things. Um, now I'm writing prose, and I, I realize you need bigger blocks of time to to do that. So it's a little bit challenging. So I would say, uh, yeah, if I get an idea about something, I'll jot it down. Maybe come back to it later and. Uh, um, I, I think it's, it's you know it's probably like the little by little approach you know start out with something some line that comes to me or maybe a first line or an image uh, and then try to work through it and then usually it gets more and more refined and, and I, you know I discover somewhere along the line um, you know by writing and reworking lines and images you know, I, I discover what it's about. Anybody else? Okay. Well, there's uh, copies of Chicago here uh, in the bathroom. They're usually forty dollars. They're hardcovers. Uh, yeah. Today's only for twenty, so yeah. I would encourage you to get a copy. Yeah. And Feel free. I hope you, I, I, you know, it's, I, 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 I encourage you all to buy copies <laughs> if you don't have one, and I'll be happy to sign them if anybody wants. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, Ben.